Welcome back to the Balance Bond Podcast, Soul on Fire. I'm your host, Jordan Younger, and happy 2021. Oh my goodness, I cannot even believe it's a new year. I don't know how to talk about it yet because I'm actually recording this in late 2020, but I'm certain that 2021 is going to be a very good year for all of us. I can feel it. I see what's coming on the horizon. 2020 was rough, we can agree, but it also brought about so many shifts and changes that so many of us needed. So I hope that everybody had a really nice holiday season and is heading into this year feeling rejuvenated and refreshed. And if you're not, that's okay too. It's all okay and it's all good. So this is the second best of the show episode from 2020. Some of the most downloaded episodes in 2020. I just wanted to gather them up and present you with best little nuggets from each of those conversations. So last week we had an episode with Melissa Wood, Shaman Durek, the medical medium, and Jesse Golden. And this week we have more favorites coming at you. We have Peter Crone, the mind architect, who single-handedly changed my life, Jonathan's life, the lives of so many of my close friends, He's so epic. We could not do a best of the show series without Peter. Peter, if you're listening, we love you so much. You're just an all around incredible human. We have Ruthie Lindsay, who is so special to me because she's somebody who I've been following for years, connecting to her chronic pain story. And Ruthie's chronic pain story helped me realize that I was suffering from chronic pain and chronic illness. And then her subsequent healing has just really shown me what's possible in my life. And our friendship continues to blossom and grow Oh my God, when this episode was released, all of you just fell in love with Ruthie. And if you didn't already know her, you fell in love with her. If you did know her, you fell deeper in love with her. This was just a powerful conversation about hope and healing. So I wanted to include that. And then on a totally different spectrum from hope and healing, we have Ryan Holiday, the author of The Daily Stoic. This episode came out not too long ago, but it was so exciting to have Ryan on the podcast. I'm such a fan of his. He's an incredible author. He's a philosopher. He's a thinker. He is very ahead of his time and he's a very old wise soul and i know there's a lot of people listening who practice stoicism and also people who are entrepreneurs and big thinkers and creating businesses and brands so he really shares so many tips for efficiency and for staying in your lane And oh my gosh, he's just full of so much wisdom. So I wanted to include the episode with Ryan, just a tidbit from our conversation. And again, feel free to go back and listen to the full conversation to get the whole scoop. And then my dear friend, Wesley Christensen, from her podcast, Wake Up With Wesley, we did a swap this year. It was so fun. And she's just my soul sister. And everybody listening is my soul family. So I know that you guys will love what I pulled from that episode with Wesley. And so excited to get into this. I was told that I should stick to a theme if I was going to do a best of the show series. But in true Jordan fashion, there's no theme here. 
There's just people who I love, and that's what this podcast is all about. If anything, the theme is always soul on fire. It's always health and healing. It's always spirituality, wellness, and awakening on all levels. So that's enough of that. That's enough of me. Let's get into this episode with these incredible humans. And before we do, I want to thank our sponsor, Sakara. And I'm so excited to have Sakara sponsoring the show. They are a brand that I've been a fan of for as long as I can remember. All the way back to my NYC vegan days, hanging out with Whitney and Danielle at Ginger Snaps Organic in the West Village. So much fun. If you're not familiar with the brand, they are a wellness company rooted in the transformative power of plant-based food. They're female founders. Both the founders have been on the podcast. They're amazing. And all of their plant-based meals are organic and ready to eat and can be delivered straight to your door. And they're designed with specific things in mind, which is the boosting of your energy, improving your digestion, and getting your skin to glow. And if you've ever seen the Sakara girls, Whitney and Danielle, you know that they glow from the inside out. That's just something that they both radiate. They're both so beautiful from within. And along with delicious plant-rich meals, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials for optimal nutrition. So their supplement packs called the foundation, as well as their metabolism super powder, which I drink every morning, deliver support for your gut health, energy, immunity, and healthy skin. So right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash blonde20 or enter blonde20 at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash blonde20 to get 20% off your first order. That is Sakara.com slash blonde20. Enjoy. Tag me in your Instagrams. Can't wait to see. Now let's head into this episode. The mind architect, yes, uh, a moniker that uh, seems to be fitting for now. And Absolutely. It's uh, unique enough that it inspires curiosity right, versus me walking around saying I'm a spiritual teacher, which is going to be contaminated and people think I'm going to come into the house with, you know, sage and color right. Santa and wearing robes or whatever. Um, so <laughs> mind architecture certainly seems to definitely speak to what I'm doing, which is helping to reveal these primal patterns of the subconscious where, you know, humans get stuck, you know, in fear, which is obviously a lot of stuff that's coming to the surface right now is this this deep, deep, deep um, imperative to stay alive, right? That is any organism sort of fundamental drive is to survive. And uh, it's being challenged, not necessarily, not I was going to say not necessarily, I'll get rid of the necessarily, not by a virus, ironically, but by the fear of a virus. Right. You know, because the data speaks for itself. I mean, it's less than whatever it is, 0.5% of people who are actually going to die. And then even those numbers are questionable and they've got pre-existing conditions and they're on statins and ACE inhibitors and they're old and, you know, and that's not to deny the presence of it. And people can obviously practice due diligence and be smart, but like really what it's exposing is just how scared humans are. Right. And so for me to be able to help people recognize even prior to a virus um, that people fundamentally are driven by fear and it, it alters their behavior. They create uh, survival patterns and they adapt themselves, whether it be in perfectionism, people pleasing, subservience, 
um, as a result of, you know, the concern for not being loved, not being accepted, as we said before, and really doing anything that they can to survive, which is an exhausting way to live life. It's incredibly unfulfilling and uh, it's being exacerbated right now. So for me, it's just such a it's a privilege, it's an honor, it's a responsibility to help people sort of discover this world of freedom on the other side of the constraints of our subconscious. And that's really sort of the catchphrase of my work, shall we say. Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate thing we all want is freedom from these fears and limiting beliefs and stories that we tell ourselves and being able to let go of that and step into alignment with who we really are because it's not like we realize these things yeah. is so huge. Yeah, they're blind spots, right? In a lay term and, and they are insidious and I would assert primal for which reason there's no judgment, right? Like we as human beings have, I would assert, the way I've delineated is that we have these 10 primal constraints and that's what my book is going to speak to is to sort of reveal, you know, what are these fundamental limitations that everyone is quote unquote born with and then they get triggered by various events, right? Some some people go through horrific childhoods, some people may be sort of benign, but they have their own version of not being loved or not feeling they're good enough and things that every everyone can relate to. But it is um, nonetheless an exhausting way to live life and um, people don't necessarily know why they go to bed exhausted, get up the next day, don't feel motivated, they're in a job that they don't love, they're in a relationship that lacks any passion, their body is failing them or it's certainly not the body that they want and yet there's this sort of persistence of the human spirit in the face of a lot of adversity and lack of satisfaction, which is beautiful but if I can help remove the the obstacles, the, the the things that are inhibiting people's capacity to realize their potential, to be joyous, to have true connection and affinity with people that they care about, to not be reactionary, to not be upset, to be not in a state of dis-ease emotionally that then, you know, down the line transcends into physiological disease. Like that to me is a life worth living. And, and I've done this now for over two decades and the results speak for themselves in terms of people who's had all sorts of sicknesses just reconcile and mitigate and dissolve because of their shift emotionally to people who have started a business that's 10x or they've got a relationship that was just really struggling and now they've got this newfound sense of love or just just a personal sense of liberation and lightness because they're no longer living in this constraint of self-perceived limitation, inadequacy or insecurity. So. That's amazing. Yeah, so you really fun. created your own career yep. based off <laughs> of what you love to do, which is the epitome of yeah. what this podcast is all about, the soul on fire life, yeah. living a soul on fire life in alignment with what you yeah. truly care about the most. So you blended everything that you love, Peter, and yeah. turned it into a career. And you yeah. also did this yeah. early on before there was social media, before there were podcasts, before yeah. you could get the word out in that kind of way. So how did you get started and what was your inspiration for getting into this spiritual line of work? Um, well, firstly, I just want to acknowledge what you just said because it really captured it nicely. Like I really did just, you know, create my own niche, right? Which was a reflection and an extension of my own passion, which was my own personal freedom and expansion, right? Expansion meaning beyond the constraints, right? So if we grow 
um, in whatever regard, you could say financially, physiologically, emotionally, like really what we're doing is we're transcending previous constraints. So that was just always my own personal passion. And so it did turn into a career and, and it started, I mean, ironically, I started really in the world of physical transformation, right? So I was a trainer traveling the world with a couple of VIPs, got a, you know a little bit of notoriety just by virtue of who I was working with. And so that was um, that was an interesting sort of previous career, but it was still speaking to or looking at the same constructs of how can we access greater versions of ourselves. But in that case, it was, as I said, focused predominantly on our biology and our physiology. So when I really started to have my own awakening and I saw some of my own like fundamental limitations and fears and I transcended them, it truly jettisoned me into this new experience of what it meant to be me, you know, as a, as a upgrade, you know, uh, sort of a new iteration, a new version of being human that I was previously oblivious to. And so that opened up this whole cascade of experiences and insights and revelations that then I started to share with some of my clients. And they're like, holy shit, that's just like, I've never looked at life that way. And that explains this, that, and the other. And people were starting to put the dots together as to the patterns that they had that were causing them to be in a state of constant survival. So that's how my career started. And then I, um, yeah, it's just really word of mouth is how the business actually expanded itself. You know, people were seeing results. And then I think one of the pivotal sort of milestones for me was when I started working with pro athletes about 15 years ago. And I started with golfers out on the PGA Tour, which is, you know, this solo sport. And um, so there's no really can't account for the fact that if you're part of a team, obviously there's many moving parts. This is a guy who's got the same equipment, he's got the same caddy usually, um, oftentimes playing the same golf course. So, you know, to put in this one variable, which was me and shifting perspective. And when my first golfer tripled his winnings in two years, you know, people started to ask questions. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, that's pretty good. Um, and then that led into um, probably another dozen more golfers and some LPGA, like the Ladies Golf Tour, which was fun. And then um, then I met this, uh, who's now a very dear friend. He's the athletic trainer of a Major League Baseball team. So he brought me into the fray there. And then I ended up working with that team for a decade. And then by the virtue of the sort of... Uh, the sport itself, guys get traded all over the place. So before I knew it, I had guys on about like 14 different teams because they've gone from where they originally working with me. And they're like, hey, even though I'm going to the Yankees or I'm going here to San Francisco, can you still work with me? And I'm like, sure. So it was just, it was just this sort of natural organic growth where um, I was blessed to attract amazing people who are committed to doing the work and looking at these deep-seated patterns of, um, you know, limitation and finding a, a, a new world on the other side of it. And that was reflected particularly in sports because, you know, when you're an athlete with an immense amount of talent, but you can reconcile fear or doubt or anxiety, then you, you just become a better performer, period. And the results yeah. spoke for themselves. So. That's so cool. Yeah, so pretty what fun. Kind of, what <laughs> kind of work did you do with them that so improved their game and their earnings and just changed their career so much? Like what were some of the kinds of things that you would talk to them about? Um, I mean, for the most part, you know, there are definitely these themes that overlap for all human beings. And I would say the predominant one is that people are defined by their history. So, you know, I tell people that everything you're worried about is old, like at one level, because it's, it's, 
something that you know. Now, it's not entirely true because right now what people are quote-unquote worried about is the fear of death, right? Like predominantly, if we really break it down, you right. know, it's like I'm going to die. Which is so sad because people are so scared of death that they're not actually living, you know, um, yeah. is what's going on right now. But so with my athletes, particularly because it's like obviously performance driven, right? These are guys who are getting paid top dollar. They've got millions of people watching through, you know, devices. They've got usually prior to all of this nonsense, like 50 to 100,000 people potentially in, a, in an auditorium watching or at a, a football field or whatever it is. And so there's an immense amount of pressure when it comes to athletes. So what would happen is, and everyone can relate to this at home, is one of my quotes I say is, past hurt informs future fear. So whenever there's been a disappointment, there's been a failure, um, somebody didn't do very well, then they are now, by virtue of the fact that the brain is designed to help us survive. So what does that mean? It's going to try and predict the future uh, and in order to protect. Right. So if we know what's going to happen, then there's a false, it's false, but there's a sense of security. Right. So one of these athletes, what, what they had was some past disappointments, which every athlete's going to have because you can't be perfect all the time. Even the best in the world are going to have their failures. And certainly when I got into baseball, that sport is defined by failure. So what I was helping them with really is reconciliation of whatever had gone on before, meaning that they were totally okay with it. They found peace with it. They're accepting of it, which then immediately allows them to be done with it. Right. So it's, it's kind of like emotional indigestion is what I say. Like, you know, if you've eaten some food that your body can't quite handle, you don't have enough strength, your, your uh, digestive force isn't very strong, or maybe you've eaten too quickly after another meal, so your body's still digesting, whatever's going on physiologically that leaves you with a feeling of bloatedness or indigestion, what it's actually saying is your body is unable to process that food currently. So likewise, psychologically, when we go through experiences that are very trying, and obviously most of us do at different points, then sometimes we don't have the capacity to process it. So something around that incident has sort of left a mark, you know, and we could call it the extreme trauma or to sort of more the mundane, like it's just something that was a bit upsetting. So when it's related to somebody's perceived self-worth, which is athletes and their performance, right? It's so entangled with their, what they do, their, their own perceived value. Then, of course, when there's been disappointments, it sort of accumulates very quickly to the point that now they're concerned for their livelihood, and rightly so, because if that were to keep going, they lose contracts, they're, it's embarrassing, fans start booing, all of that. So I, I sort of jokingly tell people I give them the gift of conscious Alzheimer's, right? Meaning that you become aware of the fact that you can let go of. It doesn't mean that you forget, but you can let go of realizing that you can't change your history. And one of the, I write in quotes and my book will be um, a series of quotes that I expand on. But one that's gone very viral and I see all the time on people's feeds, fortunately, they're kindly attributing it to me. Um, and it's obviously on my page is that what happened happened and couldn't have happened any other way because it didn't. And when you really, really get that, it's very liberating. Um, And so what most people are doing is going through life with an unreconciled history, not accepting what happened, living in the world of coulda, shoulda, woulda, which puts an immense amount of pressure and judgment on themselves and others, and they're not actually free to perform. So you can see for an athlete, that's a, a massive barrier to good performance. Yeah, that causes so much anxiety. Yeah, that would be the flip side, right? So if I'm holding on to something that went uh, uh, 
sort of against my my personal desires and my history to the point of like embarrassment. I was hurt. I was upset. Uh, or as I said, even maybe traumatized. Then now the brain, because as I said, it's pre- designed to predict and protect. It's looking out for the same event happening, right? Like in baseball, you know, I had one guy who was a very successful pitcher for the for a New York team, and then he had a couple of bad seasons where his ERA, which means and runs average, meaning the higher it is, the worse it is, because that means they're scoring runs against you. And his ERA got up to about 11 plus, and the best in the league usually end up around three or four, which is good. And so basically he was stepping on the mound with anxiety for the fear that someone was going to get a hit or that he, you know, right. somebody, he would walk somebody or whatever it was. And um, anyway, uh, that season we worked together, he had an ERA of less than two. That's amazing. From over 11. Yeah. So it was pretty significant. So, so really working on rewriting, so not rewriting the history, but just letting go of it. Yeah, it's, 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 yes, that would be a good correction. It's letting go of, and letting go of is ironically the byproduct of accepting. So most people think letting go of is like I'm almost pushing something away. Whereas what we're actually, what I'm speaking to is actually integrating. Right. Accepting that it happened, not pretending like it didn't happen. Yeah. And And realizing that you're human and you're doing the best you can at every turn, right? right. Like it wasn't like in this case with the the pitcher, he wasn't going out there trying to play poorly or give up runs to the other team. It wasn't his intention. He's human. And so there's a lot of room there for compassion and forgiveness that we're all doing the best we can. But to understand that as long as we're still trying to avoid a bad um, future that hasn't happened yet as a reflection of a history that we haven't accepted, then you're, you know, between a rock and a hard place and you are going to be in a state of anxiety at the extreme or panic. And then at the, you know, the mildest, maybe it's a concern or a worry, but it's still in that realm of basically fear. (laughs) Totally. And that's applicable to everything. I mean, I find so many parallels there with living with chronic illness and Lyme disease and how hard that has been for the last several years. And just so many things that I couldn't show up for in people's lives, which was so hard. And I find myself thinking about certain things all the time that are truly so trivial. Jojo things, as we would say, like missing out on my best friend's bachelorette parties and things that really don't even mean that much. But to me, they do because of these stories that I've told myself for so long. So it's hard because those of us with chronic illness, we really struggle with that and with the guilt. And then we tell ourselves all these stories. So I'm sure that's something that you understand. And I would love your take on that for other people listening who have been in a similar position. So I get it. And obviously, when you and I got together, we spoke a lot about that, right? And you know, much of my background is also in that, we could say, healing modalities. Um, I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner. So looking through the lens of Ayurveda, especially with what's going on right now, just, you know, it doesn't even make sense through that lens, right? right? Like it's totally. all fear-mongering and this is a virus. We are more viruses and bacteria than we are human DNA. Uh, the numbers, which are, first of all, totally inaccurate, like even by the admission of whether you talk to who, the CDC, the Italian health minister who says, you know, that the numbers are probably actually 12% of what they projected. So wow. there's also, yeah, it's, there's, there's all sorts of data out there that's now showing, okay, like we're not denying the presence of the virus. We're not denying the fact that certain people are immune compromised and they're going to be more susceptible. But let's put everything in perspective here. The numbers certainly are accurate. The tests aren't accurate. So there's a lot of speculation. 
right? But from the perspective of Ayurveda, the people, ironically, that are more susceptible, and this is from an article that's actually, we could say from the, if we want to talk about sides, it's from the Western side. It's from the journal, it's called JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association. They recognize the people that are most susceptible to COVID and how it binds are people who are struggling with cardiac disease or obesity or being overweight or they got hypertension because they are put on the two predominant drugs out there, which is statins and ACE inhibitors or, you know, blood pressure medication. And what they do is they purposely upregulate what's called the ACE2 receptor on a cell, which is where COVID binds. So this is the madness as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So people are, you know, thinking, you know, that this industry of pharmaceuticals is going to come up with this, you know, panacea that's going to save the world, that's going to get injected into you, not realizing the very industry that is creating drugs that most of the people are on. Again, not all. I'm, you know, I'm being objective. Some people, there's the random outliers who have seemed to be healthy. They weren't on medication. But like 99, 98% of the people had some sort of pre-existing comorbidities that they are on drugs. So for me, from a perspective of Ayurveda, right. you know, with all due respect, it's like, why would you think that an industry that is giving people drugs versus like being proactive about helping them be healthy and maybe change their diet and not eat GMO and, you know, be outside and exercising, all the things that now are so commonplace in terms of being healthy. Why, why do we feel that that industry is going to be like the saving grace that's going to be able to set everyone free? It just doesn't even make sense. Through the lens of Ayurveda, where we look at, okay, imbalances and increased toxicities, and we look at Vata, Pitta, Kapha, which are these different energies in the body, and how we can prevent whatever it is, bacterial infections, vir virology, you know, looking through that lens of viruses, because we have a strong immune system and we're healthy. This nation is a sick nation. And I think COVID has been, if there's one saving grace from this, it's exposing so much of where there is these um, massive imbalances in the world, right? Whether it be health and wellness, the clearly the United States is one of the sickest. It's certainly the most medicated. Um, there's all of the suppression that's come to the surface, which is disgusting, you know, and we, in terms of all the, the Black Lives Matter and looking at the oppression of uh, minorities. And even prior to that, you know, what was going on with Me Too, which was the exposure of how poorly women are being treated. You know, so the energy out there is just, it's really not attractive, right? right. Like human beings are pretty disgusting. And we can even see it now with all the anger that's coming out, exactly. right? Like, you know, fuck, if you're not wearing a mask, you're like, a, you're a murderer. You know, Absolutely. it's just, which is just a reflection of that person fear and, and, and I get it and people are scared. But anyway, so through the lens of Ayurveda, which is part of my practice and looking at certainly things like chronic disease and understanding the disease process itself, it's, um, I get that it's difficult. A lot of people do have what they would consider these chronic autoimmune disorders and stuff that you've dealt with and you talk a lot to your audience about. But for me, through the lens of Ayurveda, I always like to remind people that your inherent state is vitality. That's your natural birth-given state. Even if a child, people argue, yeah, but what about a baby that's born sick? Well, I would still assert that beneath the surface of whatever that baby inherited by virtue of being in a woman and a mother that maybe was drinking alcohol or who was 
can't compromise herself or something that got across from her blood or her conditioning into the child. But beneath the surface, again, my assertion, just an assertion, is that our true nature is vitality. So then what have we accumulated on top of that? Just like a child, you watch a child play, usually up until about the age of one and a half or two, they are totally free. They're oblivious to the fact that, you know, there's anything wrong or there's anything to worry about or they're bad or, right. you know, they're not loved. And that that comes later, right? So there's the joy of a child that is is it's intoxicating, it's infectious, it's beautiful to witness. And then the first time you do something wrong and you get apprehended for it and your parents are screaming or they're upset, from that moment, you start to compromise your own joy as a child. And then you start to think, oh, wow, just being me is no longer enough. And I would assert that is the start of disease. Well, first off, thank you. And you see what you are. Like I mirror all of that right back to you. Like I learned so much from you and from watching your journey and seeing what was possible for me and learning about different healing modalities. And so I I just, I I receive that so open-heartedly and I also mirror all of that. Like you're, you're literally seeing a reflection of you. So I, I just thank you that, that really, that's so beautiful. And I'm so honored by your, by your words. It means so much. And, you know, I, I think, um, writing is to go back to what we were saying is such a beautiful entry point and it's going to bring things up and like having a support system around you is also so beautiful. I know that everyone can't afford one-on-one counseling, but there are free 12-step programs that are so profound that have part of those things have been so life-changing for me. Um, like child of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Who doesn't have a dysfunctional family? If you're on planet Earth, update. <laughs> you and that's a support system as you start going in and allowing yourself to actually feel and experience the trauma that all of us are holding in our bodies. And like collectively, we're feeling it and individually and generationally. And I think writing is so beautiful. And then for me, um, and this is something, you know, I know that we will talk about. And it's it's something that I say with a bit of hesitancy because I don't believe that every that plant medicine is for everyone. Everyone isn't called to do it in this life. I, oh. I just I don't think that that's the case. So I don't talk about it very often publicly. But if you're asking about my own journey, um, I think because of past lives, and I feel very called to, you know, a lot of Native American, a lot of South American. Um, healing modalities. And yes. I felt called the first time I saw Chelsea Handler talk about ayahuasca. I didn't know what it was. And I was sitting by my best friend, Jed, and I said, I'm going to do that one day. And he literally looked at me. He's like, have you actually lost your mind? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm doing that. Like I knew the minute I watched that episode. She yes. Called, 
Yes, because she she speaks to you. And that's such an important point to make is that it's definitely not for everyone. Plant medicine is, it's a soul calling. And if if she's calling you, she will make herself very clear. And it is is so not everyone's path. There are so many different paths to healing. But I had a similar experience where I just knew. I mean, I kept... I kept hearing ayahuasca, I would hear it five times a week, 10 times a week until I knew something's happening here and I'm being called to do this. And I, and I just knew it with every fiber of my being. And the Chelsea Handler episode was a big catalyst for me too. Which really? Is, yes. Um, timing wise and everything. And even though my experience ended up being so different than hers, but I love that you said that. I love that you mentioned Jed, who's also been on this podcast, your best friend. And I feel like so many people listening also know who he, who he is and love him. So, because you mentioned support system and support system is huge. So friendships, counseling, like you said, how have you called in that support system for you? You know, I... <laughs> It's been, that's one of the things I've struggled with so much in this life. <laughs> like school was my actual nightmare. But the thing that always came naturally were friendships. I, I think I've always felt abundant in that place. Like I always knew I had a lot of love to give. And so I received so much love back. And I couldn't read till third grade, but I like nailed the playground, you know, like I, and the type of friends, I mean, that shifted the type of people as I evolved and grew and changed the type of humans that I started drawing in were very different. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have a ton of childhood friends. I have a handful that have stuck around and evolved alongside and we've all been on our own journeys, but that has been really, that's, I feel like one, my truest spiritual gift on planet earth is collecting the most beautiful, wholehearted, expansive, curious, childlike, loving humans. Like I, I just, that, that's harder for me to speak to of how to do for people. Because for me, that has always just been like breathing where other things were so hard. Like, right. So hard. So I've just been, that's been one of the gifts of my life. And I think I chose that before I came. I I think because of all the trauma that I knew that I needed to go through um, to expand and become the wholehearted soul that I came here to be and to be the mirror of healing that is for everyone, I knew I would need deep support. And I have had that in such rich, abundant, just... I can't even tell you that has just been so profound. And, you know, I think you also, as you get on the journey, you start calling in teachers. And like, I've been taught, I have learned as I got more and more curious about this healing journey, the healers that I've met and and everything doesn't stick. I'll try. I'm so open that I'll like, literally, if it feels like resonant and they feel like a grounded human, I I will try most. (laughs) I try because I'm just like, I'm here for it. I Let me be the guinea pig and then I can like digest it. And if it feels like it would be of service to the collective, I'll share it, you know? Totally. I'll throw it out and it doesn't fit in my toolbox. And that's beautiful. But for me, some of the things that have been so profound, there's also, and I talk about in the book, another writing technique is called journal speak that I learned from Nicole Sachs. 
And I know that you have connected with her also, but just having an outlet, it's something worth looking up if it feels resonant, like stream of consciousness writing. Because so often as children, we swallow feelings. We aren't in an environment where it's conducive. I wasn't, I was told, I was grew up in the South. It's you show up, you be pleasant. You don't show anger. You smile, you be kind. You know, you learn how to do the dance. You look a certain way. And I swallowed painful emotions. I didn't know how to process them. I didn't, because my family didn't. And the culture I grew up in didn't. They were incredible humans, you know, but they didn't know how to teach it because they didn't know how to do it for themselves. And learning techniques to, to process that, like nonlinear movement. I, I dance, nonlinear dance, like through five rhythms. And um, what I've learned from Michaela Boehm, everyone can do that. Like journal speak, everyone can do that. These are things that are offered to you right now for everyone. Um, having a dedicated meditation practice every day. And, I, and like when I skip a day, I do like 120 days. And when I skip one, I start over. And oh, wow. That's something my spiritual coach has given me. And, and it's, you know, I don't, you always want to sit. I don't. Yeah. But, but that, because I'm so airy and can just be up there, like I have to give myself grounding, earthing things that bring me back into my body and give me, bring me back into the present moment. Cause I just future trip, I think about the past, I am just swirling in my head. And those practices like meditation, I say so many affirmations every day. <laughs> it's I so love that. I do too. And one of the things that I started practicing is, you know, I would write out all of my limiting beliefs that no longer serve me, Ooh. that I am a release, that I am rejecting, that no longer work for me. And I will then write the positive opposite of what that is. Like, I will never have enough money. Now I'm like, I am abundance. Yes. It's constantly forever blessing me and I am open to receive and to give back out. Like I, whatever your negative is, like one of them was that I would never find a forever partner. And now I'm like, I am in a loving, mutual, expansive relationship because I'm manifesting that. I am creating that for myself. Exactly. And you are. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's like... So beautiful. And I... I yeah. saw that you were just in Sedona and that you had a really powerful experience mm-hmm. writing your limiting beliefs and then walking in a, in a labyrinth. And yeah. I thought that was so cool. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it just, I felt cold the whole way in. I literally said out, said out loud every limiting belief that, I, that came to mind. And a lot of them didn't necessarily fit at the moment, but I, they, I feel like they could still live in my body. And if they came up, then it's something, right? Yeah. And so every limiting belief that I believed, I would say, I release the story because it's not true. It's a story. I release the story that I'll never find a partner. I release the story that I eat my feelings. I release the story that I am disembodied. I release the story that I will not have enough money. I release the story that I am not smart. I I mean, I went through every limiting story that I have experienced or that has been said to me or I've felt. And 
when I got to the middle, I just released it. I just opened my palms and I just, it was like, I'm giving this up to Mother Earth to transmute it. And then on the way back out, every word that came out of my mouth was an I am statement. And I would say, I am abundance. I am fully embodied. I eat when I'm hungry and stop when I am satisfied. I um, am in a loving mutual relationship. I am brilliant. I have so much to offer this world. I awaken the shaman within me. I fully connected to the divine mother earth. I am a healer. I am healing. I am healed. Like I just, the whole way out, everything that came to my mind, I would say it in an I am and just claim it over myself. And I first started with doing that in the mirror. And it's a part of my daily meditation. Like I, I sit, I have a little hand mirror right in front of my altar. And I, I every day, you know, look in the look myself in the eye, which is like our soul. And I speak those things. And when I first started doing it, let me tell you, I didn't believe it. (laughs) I didn't believe those words, but I knew that my body heard me. And so it just became a practice. And now I know it's true. I believe every word and my body believes it, you know? Yes. It's so precious. Like we're all so deserving of that self-love. Reading the book, You Can Kill Your Life was so profound for me. I love that book. Me too. Hey, I actually read that during one of my water fasts. And I felt like it came to me at that time for such a powerful reason because I really needed it. As you know, because you have also fasted, which I want to talk to you about. I needed something like that during that water fast because I was coming up against my deepest darkness that could ever exist. And it was so tough. And I second guessed myself millions of times. And reading that book was just like truth. It was like realigning with the earth, realigning with my body, knowing the deepest truth. In a way, I felt like, did I write this? Did I write this in a past life? I could only wish because Louise Hay is so magical. But that's how connected I felt to it. Um, Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, I know. She, I just re started reading a few of the chapters because I was just like, it's such truth that I want to embed this inside of me and I want to live in that expansive, abundant looking like I've been waking up in the morning and I'm like, thank you. What miracles are going to happen today? Like, I, I just, I'm expecting them. I'm expecting abundance. And the more I lean into that, the more I'm so generous because I, I know that there's always more, right? Yes. Like, and I've been even like, she talks about this and it's been the sweetest practice because, you know, work, just everything kind of stopped for a while. And, you know, my, my old story wants to be like, oh gosh, so much is going out. And, right. and I started switching this narrative where literally every bill that comes in, like if it's a phone bill, I'm like, I I bless it. And I'm like, thank you so much that you are allowing me to stay connected to my humans and to the world. And you're allowing me to like have these 
tender, precious moments with people I love. And when the light bill comes in, I'm like, thank you so much for this energy that I, like, I get to see my precious dog at night and I get to light up this home that I love so much. And when I pay my mortgage, I'm like blessing my home and thanking it for holding me and blessing me and being the sacred space for me to heal. And when I check out and I'm like, you know, tipping them, I'm like, thank you for feeding me and nourishing my cells and my body. And thank you, gas station, that I could pay for this gas to go visit people I love and see mother nature. And it's just, it's shifted everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm going to try that. That is such a beautiful idea and such a great way to live and just be in gratitude for everything. And also your affirmation of you are abundance that fits in so well with that because when you're abundant you can you can thank your bills you can thank all of that stuff because you are endlessly abundant and brilliant and all of those beautiful things yes 100% i and love that just you know it's been such a i think space like in this time where <laughs> the universe has put us all in this like virtual timeout and real in real time timeout. Um, I I think I, I was taking this course during this time called the Alchemy of Chaos, and it was so beautiful because they, we talked about in space. That is where transition. That is where emergence. That is where creativity comes. And if we're not giving ourselves space and we're not creating it for ourselves, like this was a forced space, right? (laughs) And completely painful as it was for so many. And I, you know, I also speak from a very privileged point of view. I was able to take that space. I did not have to go out and work every day and I was healthy. And so I'm very aware that I'm speaking from that space. Um, But what was able to come out of that where I had to slow down, I had to stop, it brought up some very painful things. And it wasn't all rosy, like not being able to go on this book tour that, you know, I've written this book for three and a half years and writing for me is not enjoyable. And like the light at the end of the tunnel is now I get to go be with humans and I get to share space with people because that's life-giving for me. And we've been working on this. Literally, I worked on it for three and a half years and working my ass off on this tour and so much planned. And it all shut down a month before my book came out. And it was a real loss. And and I can say to you with the deepest conviction, I let myself feel that loss also. It's not, this isn't some toxic positivity of (laughs) pretending this It really sucked and it was painful. And I can say to you that I am so grateful for this space. I It is exactly what was meant to be because obviously it was what it was. And it just, it broke me up and open. Like a part of me died in this time. And I think there's, we're always experiencing death and new life all the time. I mean, our cells are experiencing that every single day, a million times, you know? Mm-hmm. And a part of this, it was almost like this ego death that, you know, 
everything didn't come out the way I wanted. And I wasn't able to get on all these lists and all these things that were projected. And now I'm like, oh my God, it was so perfect. Like, and after, to be really honest with you, after everything happened with George Floyd, I haven't thought about it. I'm like, literally, who cares? Like, I, it's so much more important. Um, it, this space has given me time to reflect on like the healing spaces that we're in. Like the amount of times I go and our audiences are 80 to 90% middle to upper class white people. And I'm like, healing should never be a privilege. These spaces mm-hmm. are not inclusive and they are meant to be. And it's given me space to rethink how I do my work and the way I do my work and how I can be a better ally. And I've been able to dive into seeing the inherent racism that has lived inside of me because of what patriarchy has taught me. And I'm like weeding that out. and and exposing it. And it's painful and it's the most important work that I can be doing. And I'm so grateful because I want to show up in this world as a wholehearted soul. I want to do all the healing work on myself so I can show up and be a mirror of all the abundance and all the love and all the healing and all the divinity that lives already within them. I'm like, you don't need me. I'm going to moonwalk the fuck out of here because this is all yours. We're just here to mirror to you what's already within you. And that, it just feels like such a privilege and such an honor. And I, I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of the trajectory of my life. Like I, I wouldn't change how my book came out because it cracked me open and has sent me on this next level. I've been on the healing journey and it took me even deeper and even, wow. even broader and even more expansive. And I had space to do a water bath. All right, guys, just a brief interruption from this best of the show episode to talk about life seasons, my favorite supplements. You've heard me talk about them. They're amazing. Currently, I'm obsessed with their IBS soothing formula, probably because that's one of the things that I always need the most. It's full of natural herbs and something that I take all the time, which is triphala, one of my favorite Ayurvedic herbs, as well as caraway, slippery elm, and marshmallow. So if you don't know about life seasons, first of all, you should know their mission is to combine the wisdom of nature and the progress of science, which builds the foundation of good health that empowers each and every one of us to live life to our fullest. You can use the code BLONDE at lifeseasons.com to get a discount on all their fabulous supplements. And depending on what you're looking for and what you need, they have supplements for metabolism. They have supplements for blood circulation, for cholesterol, for anxiety, for sleep, for clarity, mobility, also for mood, and the list goes on. And the reason why I trust Life Seasons beyond any other supplement company is because not only do they do clinical studies on 
all of their ingredients that they use in every product, but they also do clinical studies on the finished product, which is pretty much unheard of, and it's amazing. So you can find their products on their website with the code BLONDE. You can also find them at Whole Foods, Erewhon, Sprouts, or any other major health food retailer across the nation. So check them out. Use that code BLONDE. Link in the show notes and enjoy. So when you started doing this, what was your first book and what was the inspiration for it? And how did you get going? So I was a research assistant on a number of books and then I did marketing for a bunch of books. But the first book I ever wrote, I wrote a book in 2011, which came out in 2012 called Trust Me, I'm Lying, which is sort of an expose of how the media system works how it sort of influences is created, um, you know, sort of like kind of pulling back the curtain about how our sort of modern information ecosystem works. And, uh, you know, it was my it was my first book. So it was sort of the first time I'd really done anything as me in the in the sort of published sense. I mean, obviously, I'd written online for a long time, but I think I'd started my first blog in 2006, maybe 2005. And the first time I was ever paid for writing was when that book came out in 2012. So it had been a long, long journey to get there. Um, and then once I was there, I was sort of already had the next book and the next book and the next book in line. I, I was like, just not going to waste that moment. Right. That's amazing. So you yeah. wrote that book. And then the next, what was the next book? So the next book I sold is actually the, the, my first book about Stoic philosophy. It, the order, the, how the books came out was a little bit different. But what I knew is I was doing this marketing book, which I knew would do well. I knew it would get attention. I knew it was the right one to get my foot in the door. But what I really wanted to write about was philosophy. And so the, I think the week my first book came out, I had the proposal ready for my next book. And the interesting thing about it was my publisher was not particularly excited. They wanted me to do more like what you find when you're successful at something is people want to keep you in that box for the same reason we were talking about. It's safer, it's more predictable, it's more obvious, it's less work. Um, so to want to transition from marketing to ancient philosophy, you know, was not there was not a lot of enthusiasm about yeah. that, but it was definitely the right decision. And uh, so it's like I feel like my career has been in a sense a lot of those jumps, right. You've had a lot of trust for where you're going. It sounds like when maybe you didn't even realize where that was going to be, but you've just been following your heart, which I think is so cool. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's a it's a combination of your gut. It's a combination of like knowing your audience. So that's a main. That's a thing that not a lot of authors have, right? For most of history, an author wrote a book, which they sold to a publisher, who sold it to bookstores. Who then sold it to customers? You know, you have a direct. You talk to your audience on a daily basis, right? You put mm-hmm. up a post, and then they 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 comment on it. They send you messages. You know, you see what they like and what they don't like, and and so one of the benefits of writing online and having an email list. I was later to social media, but I've been having an ongoing conversation with this audience for now almost 15 years and maybe longer. Um, and so, so I know what they like and I also know what I like. And those yeah. two pieces of data allow me to, to take risks, sure. But I'm, I'm not sh- like shooting in the dark either. That makes sense. 
That totally makes sense. So let's talk about stoicism, okay. a concept that has changed my life. And oh, for wonderful. you, I will say, I think this ancient stoic, stoic philosophy was not accessible at all. I'll just put it that way. So sure. how did you have the foresight to start talking about stoicism in this day and age? So I got really lucky myself. When I was in college, I, I was at this conference. I was writing for that newspaper I was telling you about. And I asked the speaker, I said like, hey, what books are you reading? And they recommended that I read a book from one of the Stoics. And I read it and it just, it blew my mind and I loved it. And then I went and I was like, well, I'm going to read everything about this. And I went and I read the other books and they, they, just, they just couldn't do the material justice. I felt like, I, I was like, this is so rich and interesting but it's not being expressed well. Um, the, the original texts are amazing, but everything published since then is falling short. And I was really disappointed in that. And, and so when I, I sat down to write my own book, the idea was I wanted something that made it more accessible. A lot of the, the other books that have been published about Stoicism are for people who are fans of Stoicism, which is a small number, right? Or, or it certainly was. Uh, seven, eight years ago. And so what I wanted to do was take these ideas that, uh, as you said, people find difficult to uh, understand. And I wanted to change that. Like I wanted to pay forward the gift that I had been given by the philosophy. And I felt like the way I could do that was by, by making them accessible. Yeah, that's amazing, which you've definitely done. Well, thank you. So do you kind of try to live by that Stoic philosophy every day? Well, the operative word there is try, of course. I think it's, a, it's a, in some sense like an impossible standard, but ultimately uh, uh, like a thing, you never get perfect, but you can make progress. And so, yeah, I, I think the Stoic virtues are how I try to live my life. They're what I try to use to guide my decisions. But, you know, the Stoicism that I was trying to practice when I was 18 years old you know, was was not the same as the stoicism I'm trying to I'm practicing now at 33 with two kids in the middle of a pandemic, right? It's right. different. But the more I practice it, the more I study it, I feel like the closer I get to, you know, getting better at it. Right. So let's explain stoicism to the people listening for anyone who has no idea what it is. Well, if you have no idea what it is, then you know me saying like, "Hey, this is a philosophy founded in ancient Greece and then makes its way to ancient Rome." That's like not what you want to hear. What you want to hear is like what I think the core definition of Stoicism is, which is we don't control what happens, but we control how we respond. And so, Stoicism is a philosophy then that sort of focuses on what's up to us: our emotions, our feelings, our opinions, our actions. And it, it tries to tune out other people's opinions, other people's actions, whether something is fair or unfair, you know, whether, whether it's what we want it to be or not what we want it to be. But like we try to look at the world really objectively. That isn't to say we don't try to change the world, but we have to start the real objective, honest, unemotional assessment of whatever we're looking at. It's been so helpful for somebody who's in the social media business, sure. getting tons of opinions every day. Some of them wonderful. Some of them like, I hate you, Jordan. You're su such a terrible podcaster, writer, all this stuff. Stoicism has helped me. And your book, Ego is the Enemy, 
has helped me so much to kind of drown out, at least try to drown out the noise of the praise, which I love. Like, sure. Who doesn't love praise? But like you teach, if praise you hold to such a high standard, and of course, the negativity is going to affect you very, very deeply. Right. I think, you know, obviously anyone who puts stuff out in the world has to deal with what you're just talking about. But I think to be a woman and a woman on social media, it's just a whole other level that like uh, guys and regular people just can't understand. You just, you're just bombarded by, in some respects, the worst parts of humanity. But then you're also bombarded by some of the most tempting sort of misleading, deceiving parts of humanity, right? And and the Stoics were familiar with this. I mean, Marcus Aurelius is not just like this random person. He's the emperor of Rome. Right. And so you know, he's writing to himself in meditations. He's like, look, are you going to praise the, the cheers of the crowd? He's like, you know who these people are. You know what they do in private. You know, um, one of my favorite lines, he says, he goes, we care about ourselves more than other people but we care about other people's opinions more than our, more than our own. Meaning, um, not that we're selfish, but it's like we, we value ourselves. And yet, when somebody else says, you suck, that hits us. Even though we, we don't think that we suck, when they say it, we, we go, are they right? Yeah. And so you have to sort of cultivate this thick skin or... Or you're just at the mercy of of whatever's happening, and and it, it, your point is a good one, which is it cuts both ways, right? When everything's going well, uh, you think you're amazing, but it's naive to think everything will go well and be positive forever. You know, eventually trends change, or people, you know, uh, some some something happens, or people make mistakes, and now all of a sudden you're getting hit with all this negativity. You you can't let that affect you because it. It's not up to you. It's up to it. It's, it's just not up to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I've tried to live by those virtues, and that's a book that I underlined so many different parts. And oh, I also I that. gave that book to my dad, who has lived a very. I mean, he's a businessman. He doesn't, you know, purposely live in the ego, but that yeah. book made him realize how much he lives in the ego and just there's so much to teach within that. Well, one of the things I wanted to do with that book is make a really big distinction between ego and confidence. Mm-hmm. So when people, when, when, when people hear like, oh, so ego is the enemy and they go, but isn't a little bit of ego a good thing? Um, and, and the answer is no. Uh, confidence is important. Ego is something different than confidence, right? Confidence is, is, is an accurate understanding of your value, of your worth, of your skills. Ego is this sort of artificial you know, belief in your, in your superiority and your specialness that all eyes are on you. So we can see how egotistical people, for instance, do really well on social media because their ego, first off, draws them to perform, to want to have an audience. But it also, it can appear like confidence, right? Like to the outside world, it's very hard to know that difference. And we often don't know the difference until that person crosses some line. And then you're like, whoa, what are they talking about? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so it's like you think Kanye West is this super talented rapper and you, you admire his swagger and his confidence. And then you realize, oh, 
know, this guy's not even on the same planet as everybody else. Like, right. this is actually a really dangerous thing that he's doing. Yeah, reading your latest book, which is amazing, by the way. Thank you. And reading about the kind of mini biographies of each of these Stoic philosophers and seeing that way back in these ancient times, there were very tyrannical rulers. And we think we're living in this crazy time, which we are. But we think, I think a lot of us feel like, oh my God, how did we get here? This has never happened before. And your books remind me this has been happening forever. So there's this, there's this great SNL skit. It was like a CNN set. And like, Basically, the hosts are saying like over and over again, like, this is not normal. And it's like any student of history knows, in fact, that this is totally normal. Mm-hmm. That's not to say it's okay. It's, it's very alarming. And we, we are obligated, I think, as moral human beings to do something about it. So I'm not saying that it's okay. Right. But what I'm saying is that if you have any understanding of history, uh, and again, I think we can say this non-politically, Donald Trump is not the exception. Donald Trump is the rule, right? Like if you you don't even have to understand history. If you've listened or watched a Shakespeare play, like you've seen that character before. When you see, you know, police officers abusing their power or their authority, it's like if you have any sense of history, you know that this is what power does to people, right? Like you if you if you understand contextually where these things are. So I think one of the things we learn from history is actually a much better understanding of the present. Um, The Stoics were, one of the core Stoic virtues is justice. So the Stoics cared very deeply about what was right, what was fair, about the fate of the more vulnerable. You know, Marcus Aurelius talks about the common good like 80 times in meditation. So he was deeply concerned with right and wrong, but he also understood that history was a brutal, unfair, you know, parade of, dictators and and abuses of power and corruption and so on and so forth. So by having that perspective, he's able to focus on what he can do rather than what I think a lot of people are stuck with, which is like they're angry, they're they're despairing, you know, they don't have any hope. They're really, they're really just overwhelmed and confused by it. I mean, even like the pandemic, like the pandemic is obviously extremely bad, but exactly 100 years ago, we had the Spanish flu, which was a, a, a pandemic 50 times worse than the one that we're in. And so if you want to understand today, don't, don't leave CNN on for two hours. Go read a book about the Spanish flu or read a book about the plague. Yeah. And you can learn a lot that allows you to see this with both perspective and clarity. Right. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So when you do read about the pandemic from a hundred years ago and the crazy rulers, what are some virtues that we can put into place now to feel more at peace? Well, I mean, what was fascinating to me reading about the the pandemic in in 1919 and 1920 was how many people, like they would have these different towns. So like one town would would take the warnings about the virus very seriously. And then other towns would like proceed with a with a parade. Like the town of Philadelphia had a parade during the the middle of the pandemic against all warnings and against all advice. And like two days later, every room in Philadelphia's hospitals were filled. Right. And so you go, oh, okay. 
people deliberately not listening to experts is a reality of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to get angry that people aren't wearing masks. I'm going to wear a mask and then I'm going to be smart about the, the situations I put myself in. And instead of, you know, putting myself at the mercy of those people's poor decisions, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, like the decision to send or not send uh, my son back to school and daycare. It was like, okay, what happened in the Spanish flu? Well, people told themselves it was over early. They told themselves they had a really good understanding of it. And they, they rushed back and it blew up in their face. Now, that's not to say that uh, nobody should have sent their kids back to school. It's just saying, from my understanding of this thing, it helped guide my decision in a way better than the latest numbers from the CDC would because that's just a snapshot of where we are now. I want to look back at history and go, okay, what are the, what are the errors that people tend to make over and over again? Yeah, I mean... That makes so much sense. So much better than just getting angry at people. And there, there's so much anger and outrage right now. Not, I know. It's, it's a hard place to be in. But reading even your book this morning, it was nice to know this has been happening throughout history and that we can choose our approach and we can choose our reaction. Well, even the founding of Stoicism, Zeno, the, he's the founder of Stoicism, he... he becomes the founder because he suffers a shipwreck, goes bankrupt, and has to start his life all over again. And yeah. in the process, he discovers philosophy. So I just thought it incredible that like, oh, bankruptcy. I mean, like, I know lots of people that that's happened to. And I know mm -hmm. some people that have been ruined by it and other people who emerged better human beings for it. And that, you know, these are 2,300 years ago, a human being was going through something that your neighbor might be going through right now. And I just, again, I think we can look to the past and get some perspective and wisdom. And that's a core element of the philosophy. Yeah, definitely. So do you have a favorite Stoic philosopher? I, I have different, different favorites. I mean, they're all fascinating to me. I think Marcus Aurelius is, I mean, just one of the most fascinating characters to ever walk the planet. I think Seneca is a fascinating figure in that he was kind of the most ambitious. And, you know, he was very famous in his own time. He was one of Rome's you know, most prominent writers. But he's also a politician. He's very ambitious. And so I love the tension in Seneca of like his sort of philosophical ideas and then his like worldly goals and his job and, and how they were kind of sometimes in, in conflict with each other. So I, I mean, I love all of them, frankly. Like, right. and, and that's kind of why I've dedicated my life to writing about them. But um, every time I pick them up and, and explore them, I learn something else. And this one, I was like, oh, this is big. What I just witnessed, this is big. I don't think I can be with him and I love him, but this is not in alignment with who I am and he doesn't hear me. And, and it's just so big, so bad, so scary that I tried to stuff this wound that I just witnessed our life. I, and it wouldn't go down. It would not go down. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to stuff it harder and harder. And I forced this down so hard that what I think happened was that it broke the entire little box of traumas that I keep in my body and everything spilled out 
all at once. All of my unhealed stuff. I was having memories of stuff from when I was three, two, things at 16, things at nine. Like everything came back full force. And I think I went crazy. I went crazy. What happened? I mean, first of all, I can totally relate. <laughs> and again, in like thousands of ways, we're so similar. I know. But what, so what, what came to a head when oh, this happened? So it was such a hard time. And I just had a baby too. And I think that I really was feeling like that hormonal shift on top of it, on top of the sleepless nights, on, on top of the trauma and the repressed memories coming back. I started to see... What I, I actually talking to you has changed my opinion on this, but I thought what I was experiencing was body dysmorphic disorder. So I would look in the mirror and I would see my face, but it wasn't my face. And it looks like scary to me. And I had had a surgery that messed with it. And I kept thinking like, okay, maybe this is just like swelling. But I'm like, no, like I'm seeing stuff that is not real. And I thought that if I told people, even Bronson or my mom or anybody, like the truth of what was really going on, that they would institutionalize me, that I would be put in like a psych ward because I was seeing things in the mirror that weren't there. I could logically understand it wasn't real, but it did not matter. I was seeing things in my face. Now, after talking to you, I think maybe it was the start of my spiritual awakening. Yes, maybe I was seeing, seeing yourself shape shifting yes. to whatever was there. I just thought I was <laughs> mentally ill. <laughs> right. Well, I know because the, the the line is so fine. And I have such an opinion on this. I think so many people who are quote unquote mentally ill are just knowers of the truth. Oh. And they just need to be in a different environment or they just need a little bit. They need to talk about it or open up about what they're experiencing. I feel that so strongly. I... Every, I microdose mushrooms or anything. I sobbed to, to Jonathan, my husband, and I'm like, oh my God, no, everyone who's mentally ill, they're right. <laughs> yeah. Everyone needs to listen to them. <laughs> and I sob about this to him all the time. And he's like, okay, you're like, you're probably right. And you are right. Have you ever, I'm reading this book right now. Oh, I'm going to botch the name. It's about women and they compare them to wolves. Like women, the oh, divine... women who run with the wolves. Women who run with the wolves. And it is blowing my mind because every woman who has ever been lab labeled crazy, they are in their most authentic, truthful self. Like that is Literally. what it is. We have got this so turned around. Like that's what I realized. Oh, I know, I know. And as you've been talking, I've been seeing youth shapeshift a little bit oh. as I do with people. Sometimes I don't see it on Zoom, but I finally started seeing it with you. You did. It's yeah. It's like a witchiness. Oh, you're like a witch, but like past lives. Yes. In the best way. Like super powerful witch with all these incredible woman gifts. You know, like we women are so powerful, and you're totally a witch. That's how I feel. I was like, I told Bronson this. I was like, if I, it was back in the day, the Salem witch trials, I'd be on the stake, man. Like I you probably were. Oh, and you probably, shoot, I probably was. for that. <laughs> and I was too. Like I started writing a fiction book about the Salem witch trials because I feel like so connected to it. And even if it wasn't that, I know in a past life, I was burned at the stake for being powerful. Oh yeah. And I feel like same with you and same with most women who have these spiritual awakenings in this life. It's like, true. I could feel 
that when I was stepping into my power, it made people uncomfortable. So I would consistently throughout my life, water myself down to make myself more palatable, to make it easier for people to be around me because I didn't ever want to make anyone uncomfortable. I could energetically feel that shit. So I was like, I'll just water myself down and water myself down until I was 26 and nothing but a puddle of water. I wasn't, I wasn't me anymore. I watered right. myself down till I was nothing. Wow. Yeah. So what did you do then? Well, like I said, we were still poor. <laughs> I didn't have resources. I didn't have a babysitter. I was a stay-at-home mom. Our marriage, I was he was okay. He got help. Within four weeks, he was off of every prescription medication and, and himself. But I did not trust that at this point. I was so wounded. The walls were up so high. I, I didn't trust myself either, him or myself. And we had moved, he had moved to Southern California and I stayed home with the kids. Like I didn't even move with him. And it took a few months before I was like, okay, like I really don't want to throw this away. Like after, even all this shit that's happened, I really love him. And I was pissed. That I loved him. I like would daydream about hating him. Like I would try to manifest hating him. Could never go there. I loved him to his core. I couldn't hate him. I was like, damn it. I like him so much. I have to like stay <laughs> married to him. Yeah. So I'm so grateful I did because I moved to Southern California and it was, it was weird because I was totally alone. I didn't have a friend. I didn't have family. I was just with my babies. And looking back, I always see women and I and and they like their shame about being alone. Like you don't have friends and you just feel lonely and there's no one who understands you and I'm looking back and I realize what an absolute gift it is to be totally alone. Because it was in my aloneness day after day he would work really late hours, go to work early and not get back till 8 when the kids were already asleep. And so I spent about 2 years alone. And in that time, I start. This is actually before Marie Kondo, but I would journal and I would pray and I would journal and I would pray and I was meditating. And I had this idea come to me because I could recognize that my beliefs weren't my own. I, re- I started to really recognize in my meditation that, like, maybe some of this disconnect I'm feeling with like my personality and my body and who I am in this world is maybe because of these beliefs that have been implanted in me since the age of two. Maybe they're not mine. Maybe this is the struggle I have in life. So I started journaling about every belief I had about religion, about God, about myself, about being a woman, about motherhood, about marriage. There isn't an area I didn't go to and I would write down the beliefs that I had, either imposed on me or natural, and I would pick it up metaphorically. I would hold this belief to myself and I would be like, is is this mine? Does this belong to me or is this not mine? And I've been holding it all these years. And as I did this, it was weird because I started to... It's so strange because I didn't change. But what I realized was happening was that I was just taking off pieces of myself that were never really me. And I started... I feel like I was restored into who I was born as. And it wasn't in like adding the things to me, like like being a mother, or being a wife or having a blog or being well-liked on Instagram. I kind of did those things because I'm like, oh yeah, this, this makes me who I am. Like you put it on like armor. And only in like the taking of that shit off did I really come to know who I was. And I was surprised that I was like, damn, I like... I think I'm awesome. (laughs) I was like, I think I'm so cool. I like myself. Like, I think I'm 
I used to think I was crazy and too sensitive and I didn't belong in this world. And I started to realize that I just am an empath and I, and I feel things on fire. And I, I hated this about myself. And I realized it's like my superpower. Yeah. It's an incredible thing. Yeah. Wow. I know. I mean, you said so much there that I love. Like the notion of being alone is so terrifying to people. And to be without friends or to be like a stay-at-home mom with nowhere to turn, basically. But for you, this was your gift. Because mm-hmm. you finally, you had no choice but to go inward and to go through all of these thoughts and things and teachings that you had been ingrained in you your whole life. And it's so strange to look back because they say hindsight is twenty twenty, And it is, man. It is so twenty twenty because... I could see that my entire childhood, I always moved and I hated it. I never had a home. I never had roots. And and I hated that so much about my past. And I realize now that it was prepping me for this exact time in my life because I already knew what it felt like to be alone. And it it almost just, yeah, it paved a way for me to go and do the work because I didn't have resources. It wasn't as like online either at this at that point in my life. It was seven years ago. Like it wasn't as widely talked about. I didn't know that what I was going through was a spiritual awakening. I didn't know any of this stuff. I was just like, you know, alone doing this weird stuff, not telling anyone, but my husband, he would come home at night and I'd be like, so bronze, (laughs) I think stuff is happening to me. I mean, I was having profound spiritual experiences every day in my bathtub. And he was just like, okay. Tell us about that. Oh, the craziest one was... I know we can relate on this, but I had a spontaneous Kundalini awakening. And I didn't know what Kundalini was. I had no idea. I'm not a, even a person who to this day, I don't even do yoga. Like I just meditate. I'm, I'm really good at meditating and journaling. Um, so I had been feeling myself getting somewhere. And I, I wonder if you can relate to this. Like you almost feel like you're on like a spiritual cusp like in in my meditations each day, I'm like, something's here. It's close. It's like I can almost reach out and grab it, but it's elusive. Like nothing would happen. And it was like a year of being like, okay, something's there, but nothing's happening. And I almost became dogmatic in my practices, like almost superstitious. Like if I just do things perfectly, I'm going to get to this clear knowing or something's going to happen. And... This specific day, it was, I know the date, it was November 27th, 2017. Um, We had just had family in town for Thanksgiving. I was kind of, people drained me, even the ones I love the most. So I was kind of like, oh, okay, I get to be alone. I'm going to meditate in my bathtub. And this day I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do all the bells and whistles. I'm not going to do my weird shit. I'm not going to like go there in my mind. I'm just going to get into the bath this day and chill and just meditate. So... I get into the bath and right before I step my foot into the water, I have this very clear memory of me being like, hey, just go with it. Like like someone else telling me, just go with it. And I was like, that's, that's weird. So I get into the bath and I never get my hair wet because we all know you don't want to wash your hair all the time. I would never get my like once a week tops. But I get into the bath this day and I feel like energy or hand, it felt physical to me, hands like on my shoulders, pushing me down into the water. And I was like, okay, I'm going with it. I'm getting my hair wet. This is going to suck. I'm going to have to blow dry it. But my hair is going in this water today for whatever reason. And the minute I'm in this water, my head totally submerged. I feel energy in my hands like they're on fire. Just 
radiating heat and electricity. And I'm freaked out because I realize something very physical is happening to me in this place, in this space, don't know what it is. And I fear is the emotion I felt most. And just that knowing of just like, okay, just go with it. We're just going to see what happens. So I allowed, I got out of my own way. And from that moment on, I was getting download after download. I was hearing words. I was hearing, you are powerful, more powerful than you know, like on repeat in my head. And I was doing things like I didn't choose to do this, but I sat straight up. And I was sitting up so straight that the next... I think I threw out ribs for like three days. My ribs and my spine hurt because I was sitting up so straight, so long in this bathtub. But the minute that I sat up, I felt energy um, in the base of my spine just shoot up and it stopped kind of at my heart. Like Like I had no idea about chakras at this point. I wasn't really into it, but my eyes were closed. And it the minute that it broke through my heart center... I saw jade green in my eyes, my mind's eye. And it was the greenest green, went straight through my throat, out of my head. And I saw fireworks, like as if I was a sparkler. And I'm just like kind of freaking the F out. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening to me? But also it's like lovely and I'm feeling joy and peace. And I know that this is a gift. I don't understand anything that's happening, but I understand it as a gift and just to like shut up and try to go with it. So from that point, um, this is this is when I feel the divine feminine made contact with me because I, the sparks that were coming out of my head, and this is all in my eyes were closed. They formed a crown and it was placed on my head. And I was like, my ego kicked in. And I was like, oh, I got a crown. Like, what is this? I got a crown. I'm some queen of something. And it was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, this is, this is the divine feminine. This is, this is femininity. And this is, this is the power and and I mean, the love that we all have, it's available to all of us. All you have to do is accept it. It was me accepting this free gift that we all have. I had never thought I was worthy of it. I didn't really know it was real. It's a real tangible thing, this energy. And it was me accepting it and knowing that it's for all. It's not just for me. It's not, And it's not just for women. This feminine like energy is just, it's, it's wild, first of all. It is like a feral, just, I don't know how to describe it. It was powerfully wild and beautiful. And I just sat in this space with these knowings and kind of freaking out for like a long time. So long that the water was cold. And the only way that I even remember feeling the water was my little baby son. He walked in and he was only two, not even two. He had a diaper on. He took his diaper off and I'm not trying to break from this moment because it's like so beautiful that I'm like, oh no, he's gonna, he's gonna need me to, he's gonna need a snack, you know? Uh And he, I keep my eyes closed. I'm still sitting up tall and I feel him just hop into the water with me and he sits right on my little lap and I'm feeling him like, like from his arms up to his shoulders and his little chest and I'm like hugging him against my body and I am like, oh my gosh, this little, he wasn't a baby. It was his soul. Like I saw him and we've known each other. And like, it was just, I was like, this is my son. He's, he's, I don't own him. He doesn't own me. We don't possess each other. This is like, we love each other. And he, it was the most beautiful moment of my life. And he just got up out of the bath, 
got himself a towel and walked out of the room. And he, you, if you knew Ozzy, my little boy, you'd be like, that's not Ozzy. He's wild. Right. He, the little boy <laughs> is insanity. He's a tornado. So it was just our souls connected that day. That is amazing. Oh, it was like wild. Human selves didn't even matter because you, he saw your soul. Mm-hmm. He, his soul saw your soul. He came to me. And came to me with you. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. It was incredible. It's like those moments, the way that I was describing to you when I learned about the Pleiadians, when you said, and you were sober. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. And you guys obviously were sober yeah. in the bath. Like that mind altering stuff is not needed when you when your soul is here mm-hmm. and that is the most beautiful thing so did that change your life did that change your perspective oh my gosh so the craziest thing about it is that my life took a big nosedive after it and i've since researched this and it's it can kind of it just shakes shakes things up like a profound spiritual thing like that first of all like you said i didn't have anyone to talk to about this I reached out to one friend, Kelly, and she was like, I think you had a spontaneous Kundalini, Kundalini awakening. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> like, it was, right. I still was like, okay, I don't know. I don't know what any of this means. And after that, it's like my body started breaking out. I had staph infection in my face. My, I became intolerant to eggs. It was like, looking back now, I can see that it was everything that was happening to me that I was like, my life is falling apart. It was literally falling away from me. It was, it was like turn signals, like a map saying, you're not living in alignment. We need to shake you up so that you can get yourself where you need to be. And my entire life changed. It took two years, but my husband quit his job. Um, we moved states. I got my kids. I mean, looking back, it's crazy to really say this, but yeah, I'm a different person from just three, three years ago. 100% different person. Wow. I get it. You get it. It's like that breakdown. I I so get it. I mean, like your life has to break down in order to rebuild. Mm -hmm. And I think for people like us who feel things so deeply, and you said like, you said something like you just feel things on fire, Mm -hmm. which I totally get. Like for people like us, there can't be some kind of normal journey (laughs) or evolving like this happened then this happened then this happened then I was spiritually awakened it's like your life as you know it has to crumble and it's so hard but I think anybody who's been through something very very hard with their health or their life or whatever it may be gets it because you have to have everything you think you knew shattered Mm -hmm. and then once it's shattered then you can rebuild. And I see that so clearly in you. And yeah, it's like it's hard. It's like I it's died. Crazy. Like the person yeah. I pretended to be my whole life, she had to die for me yeah. to be myself. I get that. Yeah. I get that completely. Yeah, I feel like I died as well, which is why when you brought up my book, Breaking Vegan, I'm like, I didn't really write that. That was another <laughs> version of that you. was not of me. <laughs> But it's all good because hopefully it still helps people. But it's like, I didn't write that. I'm so freaking different now. Now I have so much. I mean, I already am empathetic, but I really do have so much more empathy in my life because I know if I can change in the way that I've changed, if you can change in the way that you can change. And I've seen my husband do this too. Like it really is possible for anyone. You don't even have to be spiritual. I'm using like quotations, like 
anybody can change. You can right. be different. And and it doesn't have to be this whole thing. I think I think a part of me was really resistant to this work. That's why it took me literally like like just my life imploding for me to figure this out. I don't think it necessarily has to take you for your life to implode. I for it did for me, but I just think like it's so doable if you're just honest with yourself all the way through. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you noticed anything funky with my mic in the intro or the ads, um, that's because I'm using a very different mic than usual. I'll be back to normal next week. But thank you guys so much for being here, for listening to the best of the show episode and for enjoying and for being on this amazing journey of life with me. So if you feel inspired to rate and review the show on iTunes, please do so and email me at jordanatthebalancebond.com and I will send you a free gift and thank you. And also thank you to our sponsors for today's show, Sakara Life. You can use that code BLONDE20. I'm so excited about this sponsorship, like beyond. And then you can also head to lifeseasons.com with the code BLONDE for some of my favorite vitamins and supplements. Enjoy guys. I hope everybody has a fabulous day. I cannot wait to talk soon and please do let me know what you thought of these best of the show episodes. And if I missed any of your favorite episodes, I apologize. Just go back and listen to those. Um, It's so cool now. We have like 217 episodes to pick from, which is pretty awesome. So I love you. Have a soul on fire day. Talk next week with a new episode. Mwah.